Good morning. And this is a special weekend this weekend. Um, it, it really has hit me fresh how often I take for granted that we can do this every Sunday, that we can come and we can openly worship as we've just done, as we'll do again at the end of the service. We can, uh, we can gather every week, and uh, whoever is teaching can teach openly about Scripture and about Jesus. And, and sometimes I forget that that's been bought with a great price. And certainly a piece of that is this, this human price of so many that have served in the military that have gone before that have given their lives so we could have a Sunday such as this. And so, Tim, thank you for taking time to be with us and to pray on behalf of all those and their families. Uh, but I hope tomorrow that you'll have some time, at least a, a little window set aside, to give God thanks for them and for those currently serving. So to ask God to give comfort to those who have lost someone they dearly love. Of course, we're gathering because, because there's one who gave us life that this is all about, and that's Jesus. See, isn't it stunning that the Son of God, that all power, all power from eternity past would come to this planet, and then on a given day, a given Friday, would give his life for us, but then would rise back to life again and give us this fresh life. There's this uh, passage in John 7, verses 37 to 39, I want to read to you. I've been looking at it recently, and and there's this vision that Jesus gives for the life of any person that would follow him. And that includes a whole lot of you then, because many of you here, many of you, not all, but many of you are followers of Jesus. And this is this vision that he has for, for our lives. It says, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Jesus is saying, here's the picture I have for your life. If you follow me, then the spirit will begin to live in you. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. And, and your life would have this perspective. If one were to look at your heart and soul they would see this river of living water. As I've thought about that, there's this, there's this contrast that he's not stating in that passage, but there's a contrast to a life without him and to a life without the Spirit alive and changing someone. So I have a couple of pictures that someone has found for me I want you to look at and, and see the difference in this. This is a, a picture of a river probably not too far from here. As a matter of fact, a lot of our rivers are like this. But it, would you say this is a, uh, has a river of living water? Not at all, would you? It looks stagnant and stale and it looks muddy and so forth and, and no appeal at all. But there's this second picture. Actually, it's this little video of a, of a different river. Uh, that's what I think Jesus was trying to paint a picture of with his words, is that as we follow him and the Spirit transforms us, that our heart and soul would look like this river of living water. Uh, this is the last week of this series on the Holy Spirit, so I, I need to capture a couple things because some of you are new joining us just today. Uh, there is only one God, but three persons of the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person just like the Father is and the Son is, and the Holy Spirit has all of the attributes of God in Him. All of the love, all the power, knowledge, wisdom, grace, holiness, all the attributes of God are in Him, and this is most important to understand this. When someone trusts their life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to live inside of them. God is saying, in essence, 
there's this relationship of God the Holy Spirit that becomes so close to you, the best words are that he begins to live in you, inside of you. You don't cease to live. You're still there. You still have your own personality, still you. But with this close, close proximity, he's moved into the house. All of, all of the attributes of God, has, he's moved into the house. As I thought about Jesus' word picture of rivers of living water, I thought about this passage in Galatians chapter 5 that Paul writes. We're going to spend a good amount of time in this passage. So if you have a Bible, you might turn to Galatians 5. We'll be in verses 16 to 25. And if you grabbed a Bible coming in, it's on page 893. Galatians 5, 16 to 25. And, and the very opening verses, this is what I want you to watch for. Paul is writing and saying, just because you follow Jesus, just because the Spirit lives in you, doesn't mean you're going to have this this river of living water kind of life. Okay, you, you can choose how to live this out. You can choose. Verse 16, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, like it's still in you, wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Okay? So the Spirit actually gives you and me these desires to, to follow with abandon God's ways. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you're not under the obligation to the law of Moses. He's beginning by saying, just because you trusted Jesus, just because reality is that the Holy Spirit lives in you, doesn't mean your life will just automatically change. He's saying, you still have these choices, these moment-by-moment choices to make. Verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, by the way, let me back up. This is a long list. It's just a sample list, but, but let them sink in and, and just think for a moment. You don't even have to show by the change of expression in your face, but think about whether you've experienced any of these in your life, okay? So, so this is the outcome of our sinful nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, which, by the way, is looking to anything other than God for identity and value, okay, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, getting closer to home, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, so you've, you think you've trusted Jesus, but if you're living this kind of life, and actually the, the literal says, if you continually live this kind of life, in other words, if your life is saturated with all this stuff, he's saying, you're not part of the kingdom because you've never really trusted Jesus. To trust Jesus is to desire to surrender to his leadership. And when we trust Jesus, there is some change that begins. I mean, there just simply is some change because your, your genuine desire is, I want to follow you. And the change may come fast and profoundly, or it may come more slowly, but there's change. He's saying, if, if you look at your life, nothing's changed, then you need to backtrack because you've never really begun this life of trusting Jesus with the Holy Spirit. But, but he would also say, if these things are still part of your life, yeah, there's some change, but these are still here. He's saying, it's because you still have choices, and you're just not, not given the spirit space to help you in those choices there. So when I read that list, 
uh, is that a good picture of what that kind of life looks like? Who wants to even walk into that river? Like how many alligators do you think are somewhere beneath the surface there? Or water moccasins or on and on and on or some toxic waste or something. Who wants to even walk into that? Who wants to walk into or live in that kind of life? But Paul goes on, verse 22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. And listen to these. Let them sink in. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. When you let that list soak in, can you, can you imagine a life that would look like this second picture of a river? This, this river of living water? I see that, and I almost want to take my shoes off and walk in and walk in that kind of life. He says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of life in us. So how does he do it? If it's not a guarantee that our life will will just begin to look like that by itself, how does he do it? The passage began in verse 16 by saying, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. That's where it all begins. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Now, several weeks back, we talked about how the Spirit guides. So I'm going to do a quick summary for us. You can go back to that passage, uh, to that uh, teaching about four weeks ago. It's titled, The Holy Spirit Guides. And, and this is what we said. There are these four S's. The first is submission. The first is to say to the Spirit, whatever you say, I'll do. To wake up in the morning and say, I'm, I'm inviting you to guide me. The answer is already yes. I won't hear what you say and measure it and then decide. I've already made up my mind. I will just submit to you. I will surrender to your leadership. And by no coincidence, this passage ends with verses 24 and 25. And it says this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. In other words, we've taken all those old things, that first list, and taken nails and driven nails through them, and our hope and yearning is that they're dead, that they're dead to us. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Submission, surrender. Of saying to the Spirit, okay, I'm asking you to lead And even before I hear the leading, my answer is yes. Whatever you say, I'll do. Wherever you say go, I'll go. Whatever the price is, I'll pay it. The answer is yes. Submission. The second thing we talked about is Scripture. He so often, most often, leads to Scripture and interprets Scripture for us to guide us and grow us. He uses silence. So our conversations with God are real conversations, not monologues, not just me talking and then going on, but me talking, but me listening as well. He uses silence while we listen, and then he uses sages or wise people. He uses sages, okay? So he's going to change us. He's going to develop this river of living water by, by guiding us. What I've found to be so helpful is to take this, this list of nine attributes, this list of nine fruits of the Spirit, and do a spiritual EKG, if you will, of my heart. Do an electrocardiogram spiritually of my heart. And one by one, look at these and and ask the Holy Spirit to show me. Is my life, is it really filled with genuine love for others? Is my life uh, overflowing with joy in the circumstances I'm in, whatever they may be? Is there this pervasive peace in my life in spite of circumstances that's there? 
is my life characterized by patience and kindness and goodness and so forth? To do this, this spiritual EKG of those. And what I always find, I suspect you will too, is that the Spirit puts a spotlight on at least one and says, this is one that, that the Spirit says, I would love to grow. I would love to fully develop within you. So I want to give you an example of what it looks like when the spotlight shines on one of those. Maybe it's not going to be the, the example I pick. Maybe it's going to be another one. But I was trying to find an example of, of an attribute that most people here would want to grow in. And I was reflecting, I have never heard a single person in this church say they have too much joy. I, I just have too much of it. I don't want any more. I wish I had less of it. And so I'm going to use that one as an example, okay? Could you use some more of that? Okay. Okay, this is the example of that. One, um, if that's the spotlight the Spirit puts, you might look for a sage. You might look for a wise person, maybe hopefully someone who exhibits joy in their life. Hopefully you, you, someone that you think, I think they're living that out. There's this river of living water around joy in them. Someone maybe who's further down the road spiritually, someone who maybe knows Scripture better than you, but find some kind of sage. And then I would suggest this one to begin with, to grow joy. Take the book of Philippians. It's this short book by Paul. It's four chapters, less than four pages. It's, it was written in the circumstances of Paul being well up in age. He had outlived most of his peers at that time. He's in prison in Rome. He, he's on, he'll be on trial, although a trial date hasn't been set. It's a, it's a capital crime. And if he's convicted, and there's a decent chance he will be, he'll be executed. And again, he doesn't know when this is going to transpire, so he's just in this waiting mode. He's in that circumstance, and he writes these, these less than four pages. It's 104 verses, and 16 times he, he talks about joy. And I've found myself going back to this book again and again. And while he doesn't list out if you want to grow in joy, here's number one, here's number two, here's number three, I've found increasingly, even as I go over it for the 50th time, when I, when I look at it, I see, I see what Paul believed, really believed that caused joy. I see what Paul did that brought joy. I see the perspective Paul had that brought joy. And so my challenge to you would be, if you want to grow in joy, then, then take that simple book and very, very slowly, slowly begin to read it. One word, one sentence at a time, and, and be pondering, could, is there something in this sentence that if I, if I believe this, if I live this, if I corrected this, that, that would grow joy within me? And uh, I, I don't think I'm at the halfway point of learning what those are. But if, if this is what you would choose, I want to give you at least, at least four things to look for, okay? If you're reading Philippians looking for how to, to have this joy develop as your reality, one is look for what he says about friendship, or maybe even more broadly about relationships. As you read through this brief letter, you can see him talk about some friendships, and you can tell they give him great joy. There's this deep joy in some of them. You can look at some other things he says about some other relationships, and you realize not so much. Not so much in those, but if you read a little further and you, you don't lose sight of this, you see what you might even do to correct one such as that. And so there's this profound wisdom about the joy that can come from, from the right kind of friendships and relationships. And there's profound insight about how to maybe to, to correct and bring health to some friendships, relationships that aren't bringing joy then. So that's one key to look for. The second one is look for, for what he says about heaven. There's, there's something about Paul. He speaks about heaven, some scattered places there. 
and reading it, it's, it's as though he has such certainty. He has the certainty that he's going to walk into that place called heaven, the same certainty that I had when I got up this morning and knew I was going to walk into this place this morning. He has that kind of certainty. There's this absolute certainty about, about him. There's this stunning certainty of the quality of, of this heaven he's going to. There's this stunning certainty of, of what it will be like. And, and can you imagine the impact upon his joy from the circumstances he has on this planet, which are so wretched, and his clarity that these circumstances are so brief. So it's 60 years or 80 or 100 or 120, but he has this clarity of this stunning wonder of heaven. And he knows, he knows all eternity will be there. And as you read through it and reread through it and read again through it, you see there's this guy in much worse circumstances than you and I will ever have. And, and yet, weaving through that and covering that up is this perspective of heaven that, that gives him this deep, deep, profound joy. I'll give you a third one to look for. Look, for. look for his sense of purpose. Paul doesn't mention it in this letter. He mentions it in others. But, but Paul's job was he was a tent maker. That's what he did for a living. He's a tent maker. Most of you have jobs of some kind or some source of income, but Paul had this bigger purpose in making tents, and it's the purpose of every follower of Jesus. It was to tell others about Jesus Christ and try to draw them to him. So he made tents. He made money making tents, but, but his purpose was to tell people about Jesus. And as you're reading through this, you can see how, how profoundly that would impact his life to realize he had this, this deep, eternity-altering purpose. And you see how it's being lived out even from prison. He gets to the very end of the book. It's either the last verse or second to the last verse. He's writing to this little church of Philippi. He's saying, by the way, all the Christ followers here send their love to you. And then he says, especially the ones from Caesar's household. Okay, this is, this is Rome, the strength of the Roman Empire. Caesar was God. By, by Roman law, Caesar was God. And yet... Paul's had access, by the grace of God, to some people that live in Caesar's house. And they've taken a new God. His name is Jesus. And they don't worship Caesar anymore in Caesar's own house. And you can see this guy. Okay, he's, being, he's in chains. He may be executed. And he's got this joy of thinking, in chains, I still have purpose. Hey, eternity's being altered in spite of the chains. And you can see the joy that comes from his sense of purpose there. I'll give you one more. He talks about possessions, and his conversation about possessions kind of weaves in and out. So you can't get it in a verse or a collection of three or four verses. But if you read it and reread it and read it again and, and begin to see all he says about possessions, uh, you begin to see why, why his joy is, is full, independent of that. Years ago, back in the old business days, I was at a men's retreat. There's a man named Gail Irwin that was teaching the men's retreat. He was telling us about one of the moves his family made. He said that he, he rented a U-Haul truck, and, and he was loading boxes and loading stuff. And he said his back was bothering him, giving him a bad time. And, and, and then he sees this box and that he realizes has never been opened since they moved into this house years before. I think it was seven years before. He moved the same box in. Never been opened. Now he's about to move it out. And then he looks further. It's not the only box that way. Like, there's a series of boxes, and, and he's thinking, my back is killing me. And this must have been important enough to move here, but it wasn't important enough to open in seven years. So 
must be something special in there. So he goes to his wife and says, well, what's in the boxes? And she said, read the label. I wrote on every box. So he looks at the box, the boxes. You know what they say? Stuff. There's just stuff in the boxes. And he's thinking, he's thinking, how important can this be? I mean, here I am. I'm breaking my back. I'm moving stuff all around the country that we don't even know what it is. It's just stuff. And then he turns to Philippians, this little letter of Paul, chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. And he reads what Paul wrote. Paul said, I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so I could gain Christ and become one with him. And then Gil Irwin began to talk about like the joy that can come uh, whether you have possessions or not. At the time of that retreat, I knew that the day would come someday that I would leave the old business and go to seminary and become a pastor. God had made that clear. I just didn't know it was going to happen two months later. So two months later, Marie and I begin this massive downsize. And by the way, uh, it would be the third downsize because when, when we became followers of Jesus, we'd already built our dream home. We became followers of Jesus, and we realized at some point that we weren't using his resources to the best cause. And so we downsized from the dream home. And we lived in that fashion for a while and realized we still aren't using his resources he's given us and blessed us with the best use. So we downsized again. Now, now it's going to be the mother of all downsizes. We're going to go live in this little box. And so we're selling, it seems like, everything. We're selling the second car and selling the house and all that. And, and most of it, we're keeping the bare essentials. Most of it did not bother us all that much to get rid of, but one piece did. Actually, one set did. When, when we were newlyweds, soon after we bought our very first house, we saved for an entire year to buy this dining room set. Uh, it, it's, to this day, it, it was the nicest piece set of furniture we've ever bought in our lives. And we bought it as these newlyweds, and the idea was it was, it was quality wood, quality made, beautiful set of furniture. And our thought was, this will, this will endure our, our entire lives with us. Uh, this would be symbolic of the early years and the newlywed years and all that. And, and this would kind of go with us wherever we go and everything. And, and there was going to be no room in this box for a dining room set. And so I was telling a friend from an old small group we'd been in in Dallas, I was telling this friend that uh, this is the one that's going to hurt. And the friend said, well, we'll keep it for you. I said, you're kidding. You would do that for us? He said, sure. Yeah, bring it on up to Dallas. We lived in the woodland, so I... I rented a trailer, and I, man, we had, we had taken pristine care of this, and not a single scratch on it, and so I carefully loaded it up, and I drove it to Dallas, and, and I meet Mike in the driveway, and I'm thinking, well, where's the spare room, and, and he says, here, I'll show you where we're going to put it, and they had this vacant dining room in the middle of the traffic flow of the whole house, and he said, we're going to put it right here, it's going to be the center of our whole family activity, right here. We're going to eat on it, and the kids do homework on it, we do all this stuff. And, and they had two kids, and, and these two kids, I'm sure they are great citizens. They probably are, they're in the military, I bet they're great citizens. At the time, they were very active little kids. And, and he's saying, we're going to put it right here. This would be the centerpiece of, of our family activity. And I'm thinking, might as well just burn it. Ah, I'm bringing it, there's not a scratch on it, not a dent on it. It looks like it just came off the factory, you know, just out of production. And, 
and three and a half years, there's no way. And um, I wanted to drive it off and sell it, but I could, this is a good friend. So I, I left it, and we went off to seminary. We moved into the box, and in three and a half years, found unspeakable joy. Partly because we didn't have the stuff. We couldn't afford much entertainment, and it was, it was us, and it was some brand new friends, and unspeakable level of joy without the stuff, without the dining room set. Paul saying, I've, I've learned, I've just learned what really matters. Compared to knowing Jesus, everything else is just garbage. Three and a half years are done. We, we come back to Texas to our surprise. Uh, the house we get, really God's blessing, actually has a space for the dining room set. So we're pondering after like three and a half years, do we want it back? And <laughs> I call Mike up and he said, yeah, come get it. And so I'm driving up and thinking, oh, I'm, I didn't bring Marie because I didn't want her to see it. If it was bad enough, I, I'd sell it on the way home. And so I, I go in and, you know, it's a big reunion with Mike and everything and his Kids have grown up a little bit more and still pretty active. And then he takes me into the room, and I look, and I'm stunned because it looks brand new. And I'm embarrassed to say this today, but I actually got down looking at the table legs, speechless, looking at all the table legs. And Mike said, what are you doing? And I said, Mike, there's not a scratch on it. It's like it's new. And he said, of course, Rick. I told you we'd take care of it. And, and so I bring back to Marie this brand new, essentially still dining room set that they took such stellar care of. And if you were to walk into our house now, the first piece of furniture you see is the dining room set. And we might have it till we die. If we do, we'll enjoy it. We may not, and it won't matter. It simply won't matter. Paul says in Philippians, and there are many more words he says about stuff. Philippians, he says, if, if, if we get, if we value the right things, if we value the right things, then possessions will never again be a determining factor of whether or not we have joy. If we come to value Jesus and knowing him infinitely, we will have joy, even if they're chains on, even if they're chains on. So this is what I would ask of you. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then the Spirit doesn't live in you yet. But if you begin to follow Jesus one day, if you say, forgive me, lead me, and you mean it, then you'll become a follower and this will be true for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, then I would encourage you, do a spiritual EKG now or today. You may need more time, but today. And take this list of these nine characteristics that Paul wrote, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do this inventory and say, Spirit of God, is there one you want to strengthen or shore up in my life now? And, and if there is, then go back to what we talked about, about how the Spirit does this. He, he guides us, and He guides us usually, find a sage, find someone that's further down the road, invite Him to show you what Scripture to look at, and, and have Him teach you in that Scripture. Do it, do it with a some good periods of silence and listening and saying, what do you want? What, what does this mean? What do I need to change? What do I need to believe differently? And do all of it with absolute submission and surrender. Whatever you say, whatever you say, I will simply do. This is our last 
week on the Holy Spirit. So, so allow me to pull three or four things together. It is stunningly true that the Holy Spirit of God, the fullness of God, lives right now in every single Christ follower in this room and on this planet, lives inside of you. In fact, the Scripture talks about being baptized in the Spirit. It means being so, there's such immersion of the Spirit against you that he's, he's in intimate contact with every part of your being, your thoughts, your emotions, your actions, every part of your being. He lives in you, and he, he's there to guide you. He longs to guide you. And as we said another week, he's given you a spiritual gift or gifts. In other words, there's an ability he's given you. When you use that ability, God's power shows up in you using it, and supernatural things happen. God's power shows up in that. If you're a follower of Jesus, every single one of us has a spiritual gift. When we use it, God's power shows up in that. And then his power shows up every time, every time. We talked last week. Every time you or, you or I try to draw someone to Jesus, his power shows up in that. We're not on our own, not on our own abilities, capabilities. His power shows up in that. And every single sin I or you battle, his, his spirit gives us power to win. We talked about that last week. His spirit gives us power to win every single one. And now this last one. His spirit changes us and, and is quite capable of creating within us a heart that's filled as a river of living water. Makes us increasingly like the heartbeat of Jesus. He's quite capable. In fact, he yearns for that to be our reality. We're going to close out this service a little bit differently. And uh, I'll invite the worship band to come up. And we're going to sing a song we've sung a few times during the series. But as we sing it, listen to the words. And if you can, if you can, mean them. Mean them from the core of your being. In essence, saying, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. You are really welcome here. And I want your glory to, to fill this space and all of this space in every space I walk into. So uh, let me pray for us, and then if you would stand when I say amen. Holy Spirit, you, you are, you are so welcome here. We are so grateful for you and for all that you are, all that you do. You are stunning. Father in heaven, uh, Son in heaven, Jesus, thank you, Father and Son, for sending the Holy Spirit to live in us and to, to do all that we've talked about and so much more. This time, this time of worship at the end, Lord, is to give glory to you, but it's also to say, to express our heart, to say you're so welcome here in this space. May your glory abound here. In Jesus' name, amen.